Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Society 13 Podcast Network. Redefining podcasts. Society-13.com. I like to listen. Welcome to Channel 9 of the STRY Radio Network, where stories live. Before you listen to this podcast, be aware this show often uses very naughty language. If you don't like that, you shouldn't listen. Send your complaints to I am a whiny baby with no sense of humor at nightstory.com or stop by the studio. I'll take you for a ride to a story of my choosing. So we've got a little bit of feedback from some of our listeners of the Night Story podcast, and we're trying to find a really good format for this show. Uh, you know, since we took it over recently. And, and so we're going to try listening to that feedback and see what you guys think of this. So what we're going to try now is just having a sample or a full story from our guest uh, play at the top of the show. And then we will go right into the interview. So we're going to try that for this week. And this week we have Owl Going Back, who is a horror fiction writer. He has a number of anthologies he's participated in, and he has a lot of other stories that he put out there. His newest book is called Tribal Screams, and here is Ashes by Owl Going Back, performed by Immortal Alexander. Rock Bottom doesn't exist. There is no magical stopping point on the way down. No shaky platform where you can catch your breath and just think things over. Only darkness and despair. And a gut-wrenching fall down an endless pit. Those who take the plunge often end their lives in suicide. Or crawl inside a bottle to escape the pain. Richard Cox had taken his own personal swan dive into the pit years earlier. After his divorce, he developed a nasty little love affair with a needle and a spoon. His addiction cost him his job, friends, everything he owned, and turned him into something mean. A predator. He now stalks the streets of a nameless city, preying on the weak and helpless, panhandling for money when the cops were looking, and taking it by force when they weren't. Standing in the darkness of a narrow alleyway, Richard felt the monkey start to climb his back. He needed a fix. 
but all of his money had already gone up his veins. So he needed a victim. Someone he could rob without too much trouble. Someone polite society won't care about or miss. It wasn't long before he spotted the perfect target. The woman was small and frail. Her face nearly invisible beneath an embroidered shawl. He had seen her early in the day, and it almost seemed as if she was following him. Richard had also noticed the ornate wooden box she carried, wondering what manner of riches it might contain. Pulling the steel pipe from his back pocket, he struck the woman in the head as she started to walk past him. He hit her twice more before she went down, crushing bone and splattering the ground with droplets of crimson. He grabbed the wooden box and started to step back. But then he noticed the wings. What the hell? The embroidered shawl no longer concealed the pair of wings growing from the old woman's back, white as new-fallen snow on a December morning. And Richard realized that he had just fallen deeper than anyone had ever gone before. I was sent here for you, she said, spitting teeth and blood, a death rattle in her voice. I'm your angel. My name is Hope. Richard opened the box. Blinded by a brilliance beyond words, the light spilled out, pushing back the darkness and turning night into day. And for the first time in years, he suddenly felt as if there was more to life than drugs and disappointment. Something worth living for. What? What is it? He asked, averting his eyes from the glow. It was my gift to you. The light of a new day. The brilliance slowly faded as hope died. And all that remained in the ornate wooden box were the ashes of broken dreams. Thank you for listening, and now on to the interview. So, welcome everyone. This is the Ninth Story Podcast. I'm Jeanette Andromeda. I am Immortal Alexander. And today we are talking to Owl Goingback. Hi, Owl. Hi, guys. How you doing? Fan- I'm doing fantastic. I'm excited to have you back in uh, in my headphones again. Um, Owl, Dr- I... Drug me in- out of the swamp. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, interviewed Owl on the Wicked Library on one of the past episodes, and we had such an interesting conversation after we stopped recording. I wanted to bring you over here. Well, that, that conversation we had before, I made it all up. Don't believe a word of it. I uh, lie a lot. Yeah, that's fine. Dang it. Can you make up something just as good this time? Because <laughs> that was fun. It was. We've got enough caffeine in this. We can probably be pretty good. I mean, you know, the five-hour energy's kicking in, and, you know, I, I got some Red Bull sitting down here on the floor by me. So, yeah, we're good to go. Gorgeous. <laughs> so you aren't actually Batman, then? 
No, I'm more like Robin. Okay. You know, the lazier of the two. <laughs> I'm the one that's got the stupid puns like uh, Gee Whiz Batman or Jumping Lizards Batman. I'm, I'm that guy. Comes up with the really bad puns. Did you get to see the uh, the Lego Batman movie? Because we did and we loved it. I've heard it was great. I haven't seen it. I, I rarely get out to movie theaters anymore. I'm one of these guys that like to buy it on DVD. So I can yeah. sit at home with my popcorn and just no annoying people around me and nobody's texting. And I really enjoy it and pause and go to the bathroom and get the pizza and, and go back and enjoy it again. <laughs> I think that's a perfectly valid and beautiful way to experience film. Mm-hmm. Good job. <laughs> <laughs> thousand dvds in the house and a lot of 98 percent of them is horror because you know horror movies are a few movies you can actually know the ending of it and you still enjoy it because you go back again mm-hmm. and watch the effects and try to figure out how they did it or enjoy the fact that you can figure out how they did it and you know you, certain horror movies i've watched probably a hundred times just in, especially the old classics the universal movies i mean you know they're still great it doesn't matter they never get old what's one of your favorites Oh, I love Frankenstein, Bride of Frankenstein. Uh, people ask me what movie ever scared me. The only movie that ever scared me, and it was in a theater, actually, was Jaws. That beginning nice. scene where that woman's swimming at nighttime and she gets attacked by a shark. I'm thinking, what would you do if you're out in the ocean, it's dark, something just hits you, you reach down and your leg's missing and you realize you're part of the food chain. <laughs> I can't think of anything scarier. Yeah, that's that is terrifying. I am legitimately afraid of sharks, <laughs> and Jaws sharks, definitely gators. had part of it. Yeah, gators. Um, I'm scared of them. Also, also snakes. Um, so don't when... come to Florida. We got it all. <laughs> I know. I, I think like the older uh, horror films really focused on primal fears, just basic primal fears, and because we didn't have as many of these newer films out, you know, it was all. All the people, filmmakers at the time were basing it on the classic Universal monsters and all these th- the way they felt. Maybe not even the way the movie was, like the original movies were, but how they made you feel as a child. And then they're, they're pulling from those primal fears as a child and, and growing up and watching these films and then putting them into their own works. And they just were more effective, I think, when you're going based on more atmosphere and, and, and primal fears. I think you're, you're in a better place with horror as opposed to just visuals and shock. Yeah, because you know, the, the, the old classics, that you cared about the people who were being terrorized, mm-hmm. and they built it up. They built up the suspense. You didn't do that jump scare 30 seconds into the movie, which they have to have nowadays. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you watch even the classic The Exorcist, you, you time it, and you don't see anything until you're 45 minutes into the movie. But you've already got that suspense and that fear building up inside you. You know something's going on, but they wait to show you what, what the, you know, the, the, the little girl is possessed. You don't see anything until like the movie's halfway over. Yeah, the uh, the Paranormal Activity movies did that pretty well mm-hmm. as well. That they that's what they would do is just really use like it was two different things. It was that 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 tension that there was nothing happening. It's quiet, but also they would use uh, an older. Uh, you know, when you use like an older camcorder, there's like a sound. It's like an electric sound you hear when it's recording. And they would use that sound to dictate when something might happen. They would use this kind of a high-pitched recording sound, that, like the electric hum that you get from a recording. Mm-hmm. And they would just play with that sound in order to give you an audio cue to either let you think something's going to happen or right before something does happen. And even when they do that, even when you get the cue, when it does happen, it still gets you. Mm-hmm. 
I used those tricks in my first novel, Crota, which won the Bram Stoker Award. I, I, I thought of Jaws when I was writing it, or Less is Best, and I never, ever in the book described the creature in full detail because I wanted everybody's imaginations different. I wanted them to you know, build up their own fear. But it was a little things, you know, lonely country roads where you see something following you and you don't know what it is, mm-hmm. or the sound when the creature comes, the crickets stop chirping. I actually had a man in Jacksonville, Florida. His truck broke down on a lonely country road, and he was flashlight, you know, nighttime with the engine trying to figure out. He had just read the book, and the crickets stopped chirping, and it scared the tar out of him. He ran and dove into his truck and locked the door because he thought the monster was about to get him. <laughs> so there's little, little tricks, you know, little effects without ever showing a creature, without, you know, mm-hmm. building on little things we're all scared of, you know, dogs following you late at night. Or anything like a rabbit in the woods sounds like a huge elephant. I mean, it just sounds and your imagination's better than what you can see. Have you seen the uh, horror film It Follows? Yes. And what did you think that, of it? it? I liked it. I, it was a nice twist. The, the opening scene was really creepy. I mean, you know, and the whole whole effect, you know, that you're only seeing this and it's changing. could be anywhere. And there's some scenes like when uh, I don't want to give away too much because listeners probably haven't seen it or – you know, the, 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 I, say, I say creature, but it takes human form, mm-hmm. where it walks into the room and none of the person's friends see it. I said, yeah, that's kind of creepy. Mm-hmm. I said, I've actually got it here on DVD. I liked it enough I went out and bought it after seeing it. I said, yeah, I like things that are unique and things that play in the, you know, you don't know what's coming kind of thing. It reminded me a little bit of The the Thing uh, as far Very as... Very much so. Yeah. And I do love uh, how they used the analogy of how scary it is of a young person coming into their sexuality for the first time, how terrifying that is, especially if you watched any kind of uh, video in your, like, health class about, you know, STDs or having a baby or whatever. You see those crazy videos, and then you're like, oh, my God. We we got those when we went in the military. You get those in boot camp. It's like get terrified. You're you're shivering under your covers. Like I'll never touch a woman again ever. <laughs> you know? That was the purpose. They showed them to you. They showed them to you right before they give you a day off of base. So you know that way you behave yourself. You know and we already had in horror films that you know like in the slasher films the people who had sex always died. So this was a nice twist on it, and it follows. Yeah, you have to have sex to live. <laughs> <laughs> no, pass it on quick. Keep going. Keep going. Um, so you've been mentioning your uh, your military background. I'd love to hear a little bit more about that because you were an Air Force jet engine mechanic. Is that correct? I was. I, I went in when I was 17. I went in the day after Christmas. So I get the GI Bill. It was basically I was I, I grew up uh, in the country. The closest town had 1,200 people, one four-way stop sign, and there was no opportunities at all. I wanted to see the world. So I went in at 17, and a month after I turned 18, I was in, in Spain. So I was partying in Madrid, so it was great. I just I wanted to get as far away from home as possible, and I, I haven't been back. I went home one time to visit, and people were like, well, why don't you go back and see people? I said, well, I saw that place for 17 years. There's too many places I haven't seen in the world yet. So, uh, yeah, I love to travel. I love the other cultures, and when I got to Spain, I – I didn't speak any Spanish, so I would get on a bus, and, and when the bus stopped, I would get off and try to figure out how to find my way back and go into <laughs> restaurants and point at stuff. It was a great adventure. So how does your uh, experience being a former jet engine mechanic and also a restaurant owner and those parts of your life, a big part of your life, how's that crept into your storytelling? Well, it was 
kind of funny because I, when I got my I got out of the military, I opened up the restaurant across the highway from the main gate of the base. So that was my big screw you to the military. And I had officers coming in and calling me sir, which was kind of nice. <laughs> but I was, you know, we were in, in Georgia, and it was, I was kind of the oasis for the sci-fi geeks and the people who watched Outer Limits because they didn't have any place else they could go and, you know, talk these things. So I, and that's when I started writing because we were one night watching a Stephen King interview. And my wife during the interview was like teasing me. She was like, why can't you be smart like him and sit is so stupid? And she really didn't realize I had written in high school. So I'm like, all right, I'll show you. And I sat down the next day, and I, I started writing an article. And you write about what you know when I was big into martial arts. And so I wrote a martial arts self-defense article, and I sent it to a magazine, and they bought it. I said, well, that's got to be beginner's luck. I said, I'll tell you what, I'll write one more. If I sell the second one, I'll keep writing. If I don't sell it, then I'll stop. Well, the second one I sold. Uh, shortly after writing martial arts articles, because they didn't pay enough, I switched to fiction. And it was t- 10 years almost to the day later that I was actually up against Stephen King for Best Novel of the Year for the Bram Stoker Award. That is so amazing. It was all because, you know, my wife bruised my ego by calling me stupid. I mean, she still calls me stupid. I mean, you know, it didn't <laughs> well, solve it anything, but it worked. <laughs> and I had done it in high school. I started basically in eighth grade writing stories. And in high school, they did away with uh, the English 1, 2, 3, and 4, and they had uh, semester classes like uh, mystery literature and literature of the supernatural where you sat around and read stories for the class, and then you had to write one. And I was writing 90% of everybody else's stories. I was writing a five-page story for five bucks. I was making sales in, and the, the teacher never caught on that all these stories they were reading were written by one guy. Was, was that her laughing behind you just now? I heard. Uh, I thought no, I heard. she's in. She's in her other room. It might be one of my ghosts. You know, right. <laughs> my house is haunted. We heard someone <laughs> one laughing. Of the spooks. <laughs> you, you heard it, and I didn't, because I'm sitting here, and the TV's not on or anything. So you know, now you got me creeped out. Uh-oh. Time to leave. <laughs> You're <laughs> got welcome. Got an EVP there, or I just heard my well, own laugh. The whole Indian too. thing, you know, you, our, part of our culture is a big belief in spirits and family members coming back and visiting. And I had a guy when we lost our house to Hurricane Jean. He came in. And one of the he was doing my tiles. He wanted to work at night. I said, sure, but uh, you know, the place is haunted. We got we got spooks, and they're gonna they're gonna mess with you. And he's like, I don't believe this. He's a big redneck guy and his bartender and stuff. And the next day, I, I saw him. He said, I will never ever spend a night in your house again. Said he got chased out at three o'clock in the morning by stuff he was hearing, and he'd only come back in the daytime, and then only with a very big dog. <laughs> and he tells people to this day, he said, I will never go back in that man's house again. I said, well, I try to tell you they're gonna play with you, so he wouldn't listen. Oh, they didn't just play with him. <laughs> they really freaked him out. That's awesome. <laughs> they made a believer out of him. Yeah, they did. Well, that's how it was in Georgia when I started writing, because this bar we we owned, this restaurant and lounge, it was been there for years and years and years. It was on a street that at one time it was the only place, only street you could drink of, drink near the military base. So it was very creepy, and there a lot of people would die in that area, and customers had died. So it was, it was spooky at night. And I used to tell the family, I said, "Look, I'm in here riding. Do not sneak up behind me. I'll probably wet myself." <laughs> I said, "Just stay away when I'm riding." And I was all in there by myself late at night, two, three, four o'clock in the morning, and yeah, it was kind of creepy doing it, but it was perfect for the atmosphere for the stories. Sure. I bet. Yeah. <laughs> I love writing in creepy places. Um, I, I, you know, the, 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 the 
horror writer in me, I always explore haunted houses, cemeteries, stuff like that. The Indian in me says, you shouldn't be going in those places. You know you're going to get in trouble. And I'm like, yeah, but, you know, when I get my butt kicked by angry spirit, you know, I deserve it. But, uh, yeah, I'm fascinated because that makes history more interesting. I mean, you point at an old house and say, well, this house was built in 1820. Yeah, big deal. It's like, this house was built in 1820, and the ghost of a Union captain haunts it. Now it's really cool. Now it's very interesting. Now you have a little bit of a slice of the history. What's um? Wait, hold on, hold on. But Jeanette had an experience like that. Oh, we were at this place called Cap- <laughs> Captain Grant's. I did. So, <laughs> and it's funny too because I find ghosts so fascinating, like you do. But um, I don't really want them to <laughs> harass me. Um, <laughs> so I was at this. Uh, it was a hotel. It was a bed and breakfast, and my it was my sister's wedding night. So I'm like in the room across from her just like waiting and couldn't sleep and I'm sitting there on my phone on the bed and I feel someone sit down behind me and I'm like no 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 (laughs) no I need to sleep tonight I have to get up early tomorrow you need to leave me alone and then it just disappeared like dissipated but it literally felt like a warm body sitting down behind me it was so weird yeah they were there and then they went away that's the main thing with spirits. They just want to let you know they're there. I mean, you know, I would work in the cemetery for eight years, and and stuff would happen. And pranks be pulled, and it's not physically couldn't happen. And I've seen full body apparitions walk towards me and disappear. And when I uh, did my novel Breed, which uh, takes place in St. Augustine, which is very haunted, and the main character is a ghostly tour guide, and I did it because of stuff I caught on film. And I mean, I took a picture of the Tala Model Cemetery one night. I stuck around to the backside. They had this other business that left her gate open. Put a 35-millimeter camera to the fence, took three pictures, and in the one photo, there's this green beam of light hitting this grave. Well, there's no light in the cemetery at that time. And standing in this beam of light is a woman, and she's wearing a white wedding dress, and it's an old-style 1800s with a half veil. You can see her hair. You can see the dress. You can see her face. But you can see through her. And her face looks like the Crypt Keeper. It looks like a corpse. She's facing the grave. It's getting hit by the beam of light, but her eyes are looking at the camera. I said, like, whoa, there's no way. So I started asking people there, and every, they said hundreds of people have seen her. They call her the bride, and supposedly a woman who died a week before her wedding, and they buried her in a bridal costume. I said, well, let me explore St. Augustine. And I sat down with the mayor, the chief of police, city council members, and they all have ghost stories. And it's fascinating, and to them it's just part, part of being there. Because, you know, the Spanish that are buried there did hated St. Augustine. They hated America. A lot of them buried above ground. They're just constantly digging up bodies that are under buildings. Every time they dig, they're finding another one. Hmm. And it's just all these wonderful stories. And, and people had so many experiences there. And I've got stuff on film. Friends of mine caught stuff on film. So that's kind of spurred the book. I said, well, i got to write a book about this place because it is so cool. That is that is absolutely just so neat. So you actually caught it on camera, too. That is so hard. Like, it's one thing to see something. I feel like if you're just tuned in a little bit, you can you can experience something. But, like, dang, catching it on film, that's crazy. I think that's the only reason I got it is because I went to the backside of the cemetery where nobody goes. Everybody usually mm. goes to the front gate. And I actually, when the book came out, I did a book signing there, and friends of mine wanted to go to the St. Francis Inn, which is supposedly haunted by a ghost of a black woman. And the story was, back when it was a boarding uh, house, the nephew of the owner fell in love with the black servant. Well, that wasn't done back in those days. Mm-hmm. And they sent her away, and he hung himself in the attic, which became room 3A. But it's not his ghost that haunts room 3A. It's a black woman, the servant, and they call her Lily. And a lot of people have woken up in the middle of the night and found this woman standing next to their bed crying. 
and they've left without, you know, didn't know the store, but they've run out of the place. <laughs> so my friends wanted to go to this place, so I mentioned it in the book, and I mentioned Lily in there. And we're standing there, and I pointed at room 3A, and the light was on, but the shutters were closed. And they were wooden shutters on the inside of the glass that went up past the window. So there couldn't be anybody in the window, and they're taking a picture with a digital camera. We looked at the photos that they took, and here, clear as a bell, in this picture is a black woman sitting in the window with a turban around her head, and she's holding a black baby wrapped in a blanket. And I'm going, whoa, that's Lily. And she's holding a baby. Now I put a new twist on the story because we're wondering why she haunted the place if it was her lover who hung himself. Mm -hmm. Well, she's sitting there waiting for dad to come home. She's got the kid, which means she may not have been sent away like the story is back then to cover up a scandal. And that would have been a big scandal in the South. They might have killed her. Yeah. She may have never left. Yeah. So they caught it clear as a bell. So, all your work uh, has appeared in many anthologies over the years. Uh, can you tell us how you got involved in so many anthologies? Uh, just meeting different people at conventions. I've met people who were fellow writers who became editors, and they were familiar with my work, and they are familiar with I, I do a lot of Native American twists on it. I just, you know, I happened to be in the right place at the right time. I, one gentleman I met at the World Fantasy Convention, I think he bought like seven or eight of my stories. So, you know, and once you start getting them, then they, more people want your stories. I, I turned down more than I ever got published. I just couldn't keep up with the writing pace. Mm-hmm. And it was just, you know, can you do as a story? Can you do as a maybe with an Indian theme? And I was when I was first starting out, I always knew if they're looking for, you know, between five and 10,000-word story, I'd always keep the people short as possible because if you're a new writer, they'll take a chance and let you let you have that 5,000-word slot, whereas they won't take – give you the 10,000 word slot because that could be two stories or for a bigger name. So I just kept it as minimum, short as possible to get into the anthologies and it took off from there. I ended up doing children's books and novels and the one story, Grass Dancer, which was a Nebula Award nominee, uh, it's been, gosh, it's been republished in dozens of, dozens of anthologies around the world. It's also the reason I got the children's book deal and that was the reason I got a uh, ghostwriting gig for a Hollywood celebrity because he read the story on a plane and cried like the baby and said, I want that guy to write my book. <laughs> That's actually the same process for uh, film festival submissions, that you kind of want to go with a shorter piece over a longer piece if you're a new filmmaker, because you're more likely to actually get into the festival. Yeah, exactly. There's, there's always tricks, and it's you know, meeting people, and it helps, and you find out that people are doing anthologies. And It was very hard to get into magazines, but anthologies always seem to be more open to new writers. Well, I think that makes sense because if you just, as an anthology, you can take a few more chances with who's in it. As long as you have one or two names that someone will recognize, then uh, the rest can just be good stories without necessarily a name attached. Whereas magazines, they always have to have that name. Exactly. And I used to do that. Yes, I can do it routine. Somebody say, can you write us a story for this anthology? I'll be like, yes, I can do that. And then it's like, I go home and start sweating. Like, can I, what do I just promise? <laughs> the only one I, I had to turn down, Andre Norton asked me one time to do a, a story for her. Uh, she was an anthology of cats. And I said, sure, I'll do it. And then she said, well, there's only one rule. You cannot harm the cat. It's like, ooh, that leaves me out. <laughs> and I never did do one for her. I said, if I can't torture the kitty, then what's the point of writing the story? I, I want to have fun with it. <laughs> Yeah, that was one of the things you had mentioned in um, the Wicked Library interview where you've gotten really good at getting an emotional response out of people by harming the animals in your... Harming animals. I can kill a hundred people in a story in horrible ways and nobody will write me. But if I kill a cat or a dog, I get so many angry letters. So 
every st- book I've ever done has got an animal in there, and they never make it to the end. And, and I get such hate mail from it, and it's, it's fun. And the only one time I've ever felt bad, I had a friend whose black lab had just died, and I killed a black lab in a book, and I forgot about it, forgot to warn him. And he had read it and called me up crying like a baby. He's like, you oh. asshole. I said, I'm sorry, man. I forgot. My agent actually told me to start flagging those passages in the books because he was tired of me uh, killing off cats and dogs and puppies. He said, enough. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, I'm, I'm just going to skim over those. <laughs> yeah. Flag it. Don't let, don't let me read it. And I tell people, I say, well, I, I kill off small animals and, and children because they scream louder when you kill them. You know, it's, it's Gets it out of my. It's good therapy for me. I killed <laughs> yeah. the neighbor's dog in a story. They had a barking dog. I put it in a story and skinned it alive. So yeah, it works. Won't bark again. Um, <laughs> we'll make a very so, gurgly bark. <laughs> so out of all the anthologies you've been a part of, um, which one stuck out? Still sticks out to you as one that you really enjoyed writing for? The the one I had the most fun with, and it's probably one of the shortest pieces I did. It was a. Uh, uh, I'm going to get this wrong. It's a cemetery dance did one called October Dreams. And they, they approached me. They, they didn't want a story. They wanted a Halloween memory, hmm. and which is also appears in Tribal Streams. And I was like, great. And it was like they paid me for the story. Then they gave me a slipcase, hardback edition of books signed by everybody with these wonderful writers like Ray Bradbury and Dean Koontz. They gave me the regular hardback, and they gave me the trade paperback. I was like, I would have given you this thing for free just to get the book. Because it really is a beautiful collection. It's all these wonderful Halloween stories. And in between, you've got all these great writers who are sharing Halloween memories with you, their favorite memories. So it's, it's an amazing collection. That sounds like one I need to somehow track down. <laughs> they just came out with the second volume, and I hate to say this, but it's not as good as the first. The first was really amazing. I, I mean, you know, it's one of those. I'm, I'm a big sucker for Halloween. I, mm-hmm. you know, I. Basically, Halloween year-round. I, I drive a hearse for fun, so every day's mm-hmm. Halloween. So just to read all these great stories by these wonderful writers, plus all their fun stuff in there. Hold um, on one second. Yeah, no problem. I'm on an interview. God, I got somebody yelling. My, my son's yelling through the door like an idiot. <laughs> I do not disturb sign up out there. It's like, there's a reason for these signs. <laughs> <laughs> They've just gotten so used to them. <laughs> like, <"Nah." laughs> oh, my wife a while ago did my other son call. My wife picks up the phone at about 6.30, about the time you guys are going to call. And I'm like, <laughs> hang up now. <laughs> it's like, oh, oh, no. Quit <laughs> <laughs> so it's good we were running slightly late. <laughs> It's family. It happens. And, you know, if I had my little dachshund still with me, you know, she used to actually, when I'd be home alone riding, she'd come in here and sit and stare at me. And I'd be like, you're not hungry. And she'd be like, <sighs> with that, the heavy breath, I'm like, stop it. And I'd have to actually lock my door when I was in the house by myself because she'd drive me nuts. Our, our little eyeballs hit me in the side of the head all the time. <laughs> our, our youngest cat does that to me all the time that I'm trying to do something or one of us is trying to do something and she just jumps in our lap and looks at us and like, hey, I'm just going to play with your face while you're trying to do work. <laughs> See how that works out. I want attention. Don't ignore me. <laughs> I'm ignoring you. Don't do that. <laughs> so, so how, what what is your writing process? What do you do to get in that space for for yourself? Just get my butt in a chair. I mean, you know, sometimes I'll, you I know, mean, if it's not working right, I'll go out and take a walk or pace back and forth outside. But usually, just matters sitting down. I, I, I got a lot of stuff on the wall, so I turn out as many lights as possible so I'm not distracted by all the pictures and the toys and everything else I got in this office. My wife says way too much stuff, but mm-hmm. all writers have it. But, it's, yeah, it's just kind of 
staring at the screen and just letting it flow through because it's you know writing to me it's 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 a gift it's kind of you sit back and you let the the, the inner demons tell you their story and when it's really going good is when I, it's like three in the morning and i'm wired on coffee and i'm shaking and the walls kind of moving by itself <laughs> and that's when i do my best writing yeah it's just crawling out of the wall at that point <laughs> yeah you know, a grass dancer I did in one night, and I, I don't take credit for that story. It's one I was a Nebula Award nominee because it just kind of came through me. I was just the lucky enough guy to be be allowed to tell it. And I, I think that's what a lot of novels are that way. They, you, you start it, but then the characters take on a life of their own, and you're just seeing it kind of like as a movie in your head, just you're writing down what you see. <laughs> I'm superstitious. I won't Like if I have a character in a book I'm writing, I won't say Jack dies because then in my mind I killed him off and it ruins the story. Oh. But I've had him, I've had him change direction doing about face i've had books that i thought were going to have happy endings have terrible endings just because i saw a vision of how it'd be funny to kill off one of the characters and mm-hmm. yeah i'm just i'm just watching the movie i'm basically writing down what i'm seeing in my head is that um so tribal screams in particular that's your collection of short stories that did that come that's coming out or has come out currently those are stories that came out in anthologies that are impossible to find anymore because a lot of the anthologies are out of print you know they, they have so long a shelf life and i've had a lot of fans like well, where can i find your stories and my wife was bugging me you need to collect these because nobody's ever seen them in one spot and so i actually i didn't even have any of them on computer or on disc i had to retype every single story oh, wow. which which made it made it interesting you know i was like okay that gives me a chance to relive them and she said you need to do this now, I've got a lot more short stories, but I've done a lot that were work for hire or were in sh- shared anthologies. So you, you can't put a f- uh, story from Riverworld anthology in there because it wouldn't make any sense, and it belongs mm-hmm. in a, a, its own collection. So these are the ones I could actually put together. And it was a, kind of a, a gift of love for you know the people who like my shorter work and just couldn't find it anymore. Well, as a collection, I think it actually works really well together. So you did a nice job um, putting all of these together. And it... It is kind of amazing that they were all written for like different things because it is such a good you managed to make like a really good through line between all of these stories. Um I'm I'm uh thumbing through this at the moment cuz I, I can, can't even I can pick, pick like, one. I can one. pick one a couple, a couple that I liked. There's a few that um, I want to talk about. I really liked the uh, the really short story uh Ashes. Uh, I thought mm-hmm. a- Ashes was a really an interesting oh, my voice is cracked. <laughs> I went through second puberty at age forty. Yay! Ashes <laughs> was nice because it was it was a charity anthology I wrote for, which was done by Dark Delicacies Bookstore in Burbank, California. And what they did, they sent every writer a piece of artwork, and we had to base a story on this piece of artwork. So I've got I had this piece, and it was a woman with a shawl holding this little box, and this very you know dark figure behind her, this man who looked kind of dangerous, and it just came out. It's just you know kind of a little nice little twist. But it was something just, you know, here's a piece of, here's their painting, do something with it. So then when it came out, they published it with the, with the artwork in it, which makes it really nice. Yeah, it's a really interesting story, and it's very poignant for something so short. Like, it really gets to the core of, of what you're trying to, like, you take a person who has, um, you, know, in, you know, like grounding it in reality where you have somebody who's gone through, um, you know, going into their the lowest point in their life, point in their life, and doing drugs and and being homeless, and you know, kind of the desperation in that. And then uh, it's like talking to the idea of them trying that them not even knowing what redemption is. So when they even when they see it, they have no idea how to handle yeah. it. 
and, and people experience that in real life. I mean, it's sad. There's so many people going through that. And if, if hope comes along, if, you know, something to help them, the guardian angel comes along, they wouldn't recognize it. I mean, you know, you, a lot of times we have these chances in life that we don't realize they're chances, and we should be grabbing them when, when we've got the opportunity. So, yeah, you can tell I was in a dark, <laughs> dark place there. It starts, starts out bad and just goes downhill from there. <laughs> <laughs> but it still has, like... It's like a. It's like when you do look like a like look at a piece of art, you know, and and the piece it is what it is, and it, and it just speaks to you. It speaks volumes about you know real life and what what people what people do go through every day, and to look at those things. Uh, I did like a Christmas story for the Chris Massacre episode that was kind of like that too. That I was thinking about this uh, special I found, saw about the people that live underneath New York City, mm-hmm. and and all the, the moles, yeah, <clears throat> exactly, and. Thinking about you know what their lives must be like and and trying to picture that and and to humanize them, but also to add a little bit of fiction in there uh, to kind of spice up the story. Because I was thinking about you know how dangerous December is for somebody who is homeless. You know how how the winter time can be a very dangerous time because of the the extreme weather. Yeah, most most of us in our in our little comfort zone. I mean, we've got our color TVs, and we don't we don't realize that. We don't think about it, and we try to ignore it when we go driving down the street. But there is that whole other world out there. I mean, just up the road from, from not too like four or five blocks up the road, there's a patch of woods, and there's a homeless camp there. And we try to you know we try to ignore these people, but it's like they're living this whole third world thing going on. Mm-hmm. And you know what what do they have to do to survive, and what would we have to do, and what would we have to become to survive in that element? And that that is a it's a scary thought, <laughs> but it's a, it it's is. the truth for a lot of people that that live that. Um, well, I mean, we're, we're getting that with the young men are coming back from the Middle East. I mean, we got eighteen mm-hmm. year olds are seeing stuff. I can't imagine the stuff yeah. they're seeing. I've seen some photographs of it, and it's like, how do you live after seeing that? And you're only eighteen. That's going to mess you up for a long, long time. It's yeah. going to change you in horrific ways, and that's what we're experiencing. We've got so many uh, veterans coming back and committing suicide. It's like they can't get those images out of their head. Yeah, and um, I had a – I know a lot of people in the military, but there was one friend in high school who went right in 18, went overseas, got half blown up, and then came back. And it took him years, years and years to get back to some semblance of mental calm – after what he saw, I think the biggest thing for him was it was the kids that were the enemy soldiers. Like, they they were kids. You know, they were 10 years old. They were the ones with guns. They were the ones throwing rocks every day, practicing their aim so that the next time when it was a grenade, it would count. You know? And that, I think, more than anything that he saw was what really just disturbed him. Everything was a threat. Still is, I think. You know? And it's hard to shake that. I mean, I went over to the Middle East when they took the Iranian hostages. Americans uh, were taken hostage by Iran, and we were 100 miles from Iran with uh, F-4s, and we had nukes, so we we were deployed out of a non-NATO base, so we didn't have to go by the rules. And just going to the Middle East is like stepping back in time a thousand years. It really is biblical. I mean, they're, they're in Stone Ages. There's places where you see entire cities that are tents, and just trying to like, wow, you know, nothing prepares you for that. It's even worse when it's a combat zone. There's nothing compared to that. You see films like World War II, and I can't imagine the fighting, the horrific fighting that these our, our guys did. It's like, I don't know if I could do that. Hit the beach at Omaha? It's like, yeah, that's insane. Yeah. 
it it uh, it really is insane and i i think um to weirdly tie it back into tribal screams there was that story spoils of war really really struck me like just the i don't, I don't know it was just like the bravado of the captain as he went around was like, oh, it's spoils of war, it's spoils of war, it's fine. And then how, like, that that beginning part was so horrific. And I, not to spoil it too much, but the part with the scalp just said so much about the just complete disregard for human life that these, you know, these white men had I, I have no better word for that <laughs> you know there's, there's actually a story behind spoils of war why i wrote it i would love I to hear that story. With, i was talking with chief james billy who was they say tribal chairman he's actually chief he was the chief of the seminoles for a long long time and he told me the story about Kissimmee, florida which is where disney's located and if people mispronounce it they'll say Kissimmee, and everybody laughs at him but he said no he said during the second uh, seminole war you know, the, the, there was a group of uh, Seminole Indians who were going to go fight these white soldiers. And the Indians always traveled with their wives. So they were down by the river, and they told the women, go ahead and make dinner, and we'll be back. We're just going to go kick these guys' butts, and we'll be back shortly. Well, the Seminoles lost the battle. And the white soldiers knew that they, the Indians always traveled with their women. So they basically tortured the survivors to find out where the women were. And these white soldiers attacked the women. You know, horrifically doing things to them, raping, etc. Well, in the Seminole language, there is no word for rape. So this one Indian woman goes, kissing me, kissing me. In other words, do what you want with me, let the others go. And they did. They let the other women go, and they all raped her, and they murdered her. Wow. And they, the Indians, in honor of her, changed her name to Kissimmee Billy. And she's buried down in the swamp in the reservation. And he offered to take me to where her mound is, where she's buried. So, you know, the town that where Disney sits today, where they're taking all its tourist money, is actually Rape Me, Florida. It's kissing me. So I, he told me that story, and it was so horrific. I said, well, I've got to use that in a story. So what they had done, that's why I opened it with Spoils of War, because the chief of the Seminoles told me this, this horrific story that Kissimmee, Florida, is actually kissing me, and it means rape me. Wow. It, like reality is so much more horrifying than fiction sometimes it is like and that the, and the the part about you know using indians for boot leather that that actually happened i mean yeah. horrific stuff like that i mean there's I, i've read so much i mean if people want to read some of the terrible things that happened with the american indians uh, the book bury my heart at wounded knee talks about what happened with the plains indians i mean they they weren't looked upon as, as humans i mean you know, or the the women were killed, you know, and the whole kill the children because, uh, you know, knits make, knit makes lice. So that was an expression the general gave. And they would use uh, women's vaginas they cut out as hat bands for the soldiers to wear them. Oh I mean, gosh. just horrific stuff that we don't think about. I mean, the boarding schools, they took they took the kids from the – when they finally got the Indians on the reservation, they took the kids to boarding schools. Mm -hmm. They were not allowed to speak their language. They were punished if they were because they were basically trying to kill the Indian to save the man. Mm -hmm. And, you know, force uh, – you know, sterilization has happened. You know, it's just – it's 
it's a chapter. It's horrific. You know, I tell people, I said, I don't expect anybody today to apologize for what happened 200 years ago. I just want people to understand what happened 200 years ago. Yeah, and they would never really put those. Again. They would never put those in a, in a standardized history book at all. Like it's it, no, like this no. is more stuff that they would talk about. You know, when they're talking about Nazi Germany, they'll talk about it till the cows come home because it's not our country, right. and it's yeah. easier for them to not villainize their own country, but. You know, if you don't understand what happened, how can you prevent that kind of action from happening going forward? Exactly. And, you know, when the Spanish came into Florida, they were, they were, you know, the conquistadors looking for gold, looking for the fountain of youth. They did horrible things. And basically, when they pulled out, it took about 80 Indians with them. That's all that was left. You know, either the rest died of disease and, or enslaved or sent to the Caribbean to work as slaves and, and you know, in the, the mills and stuff. They, they, they wiped out all these tribes. They were gone. And, you know, and nobody understands that history. They don't realize when you look at a U.S. map and you see all these funny names on, on, along the waterways, these are all villages at one time. These are all cities, and they're all gone. It's a shame because anybody born in the, the U.S. I consider them Native American because it's their history too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And we don't know. Uh, there's so much of that history that you have to search out in order to learn. It's yeah, not something so that's books. just shared. Yeah, there's so many, so many, you know, I mean, you know, like I think it was the Sand Creek Massacre or, or it was uh, Black Kettle, I believe. I'm, I'm trying, trying to get my memory working here. Where they gave him a U.S. flag and said, you'll be safe in her flag. And that's where he died. He was holding the flag. His entire family was wiped out. Mm. I mean, you know, just, it, it, it's just like that was common things. People didn't care. Mm-hmm. So um, what kind of books would you recommend for people that want to learn more about this side of our history? Well, I, I tell people, Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee is a really good one to start out with. I mean, you can go from there. There's there's a, a ton of books out there. I mean, I, I, it's a shame. If you go to Germany and go to the museums there, they have more on the Native Americans and American Indians than they have here. They're more knowledgeable. Mm-hmm. And I guess, you know, because we, we Americans study, we study uh, uh, European history, and we love that. We're fascinated with the Knights. And over there, it's just the opposite. They do powwows and stuff. They love the American Indian history. I mean, they have their gatherings. They dress up, and they, they, I've met so many people from Europe that are, you know, very knowledgeable on the subject. And they've researched it because, you know, this is a huge country. To this, them, it's fascinating. We were mm-hmm. the last frontier. Yeah, they're more. We're like we're more uh, interested in romancing the idea of the cowboy than the idea that we did these horrific things mm-hmm. to other human beings. Yeah. And it wasn't just in, in, in boarding schools are bad. I mean, anything like back in the day, I mean, mental institutions were bad. Uh, uh-huh. Boys' homes were bad. I mean, you know, the way we treated people back a long time ago is, you know, we were mean to the Irish when they came over. It's like there's always somebody who's the enemy. There's always somebody who's different that we're going to, you know, pick on. And it's been like that way of humanity throughout history. It's just a, the great distraction for poverty. You know, you just point at somebody else that's got it worse than you, and, and that's how they get – Americans just kind of push forward without thinking about it. I, I think we're doing it today. Yeah, we're, we're seeing that there are revisions today where we're yeah. starting to point our fingers at people and what we don't, don't understand. You know, we're afraid of, and instead of sitting down and trying to understand these people, it's, it's easier just to be afraid of them and you know blame them as the enemy. It is. It's so much easier to just just demonize your enemy and don't acknowledge what's what's going on. I mean, during the Cold War, it was like every time you didn't hear the enemy, you always heard Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, why? They, we ain't done anything to them. They haven't really done anything to us. And weren't we allies during World War II? But no, that was the enemy at the time. Yep. It was always the, the threat of the Soviet, you know, the duck and cover thing. Yeah. 
What I, what I really loved about that one of your stories, uh, Keeper of Souls and, and Tribal Screams, was that the character, um, the main character, uh, Digging Owl, how he had both anger and empathy within him for his enemy. You know? Yeah, because that was kind of inspired because I spent three years in Spain and I went to one of the castles and looked out the window of the castle and kind of inspired that story later. It stuck in my head. I'm seeing this beautiful castle and this beautiful cathedral they had and you're looking at the rest of the villages which dated back to the 13th century and they're poor. So all the power of Spain, all the might was in the rich and the church. The people had nothing. And I was like, you know, that's how it was. You know, all the gold went to the church and went to the castles. And you had the, the poor peasants had nothing, and they're, they're, you know, basically they're paying for everything. Yep. And even though it was their money, <laughs> they were the ones who were powerless somehow. Yeah. And the church had a lot of power back then. I mean, you know, that's, you know, the whole missionaries of this country in the beginning was basically the conquest of land. I mean, you, you move into a village and you, you know, take over and you convert them to your religion and you own the property they're on. They're your people, but it was all a land grab. I mean, St. Augustine, when the uh, the Spanish first came here, it's the oldest European settlement in America. They didn't just grab a piece of land. They moved right where there was an Indian village. It's like, uh, why? Well, that way you basically converted them to Catholics or whatever you wanted to convert them to, and then mm-hmm. they were part of your people, and you had uh, you could occupy the land. It was yours now. Yeah, if you take over their city, you're good. Yeah. Otherwise, they still have a stronghold. I mean, in a way, it makes There's, sense. It's brutal, but it makes sense. Well, there's, there's a, a mosaic up there in the government house, and it's, I, don't, I don't even know how far it dates back, but it shows the Spanish waiting ashore, carrying the cross, and the, the native people are kneeling. And I'm mm. like, you know, I look at this, and what I thought was like, well, the, the only people kneeling are the native people. They don't understand what a cross is. Obviously, mm. they're being told to kneel, and they're being forced to kneel, you know. Yeah. They're like, what's that thing? Why are you carrying those sticks? That's weird. <laughs> <laughs> They had, they had no clue what a cross was. Uh-oh. I mean, you know, they, they did not understand it. When they gave out crosses in the, uh, the American Southwest it with uh, the missionaries out there, the, the Southwestern Indians would put another uh, another stick across it, and it had that double cross. And the reason they did that because it looked like a dragonfly, and a dragonfly is, it represents water. And so when you're in the arid Southwest, that was the most important thing for life. That makes sense. Then you, they make that symbol something that makes sense for them, you know? Yeah, Exactly. Um, so, okay. Awkward transition to next question. <laughs> That's okay. I'm, I'm babbling on Indian stuff. Don't get me started. There's still the anger. No, There's I just came so from powwow. Many... So I'm all fired up. Oh, awesome. <laughs> no, I, I'm finding this incredibly fascinating, which is why I'm also, like, trying to read my notes through the, like, curve of a microphone right now. <laughs> so, like, <laughs> what am I supposed to ask next? Um... I feel like we talked about how you became a writer. Well, no, you but... had mentioned that you were writing in high oh, school. Yeah. So we wanted to just know more what, what kind of things did you write in high school? I wrote, well, the first thing I ever wrote was in eighth grade. It was a one-page silly story. I'd never written anything before, and it was comical. And the teacher read it to the class, and everybody laughed. And I was a shy kid. I, I, you know, I, I didn't say two words in class because I was shy. I was overweight. I was picked on. I was the outsider. But I, when she read it in the class, laughed. And they posted it on the wall for open house. It's like, wow, that's, that's pretty cool. You get power words. You can make people like something that you wrote. And that's what started me doing it. I started with the comedy stories and switched to darker, scarier stuff because I was a big monster kid. You know, I read famous monsters and Vampirella and Creepy and Eerie. So you, <laughs> you write what you know in science fiction. 
you know, and Andre Norton and try to copy Edgar Rice Burroughs. So it was kind of like, yeah, I like the spooky stuff. And I you raised on Edgar Allan Poe and H.P. Lovecraft. So I, I kind of tried to copy them. And I was an only child. I'm, I'm out in the country. I had no neighbors to play with, and I constantly read. It kept me from going stir-crazy. So it was just, you know, only a matter of time before I started writing and trying to copy what I was reading. Yeah. <laughs> and um, I, I love that. I love that how in high school you had that experience with that first story. And it's just like, ooh, yay, there's a way. There's a way to talk without quite fitting in <laughs> and then selling doing other people's stories who hated the classes where they had to read and write and couldn't write i said well you know a dollar page i'll be glad to do your stuff and that was big money back in the 70s well, like, you were paid writers from a young age then <laughs> very young age i mean it was kind of like you know i was like a monster kid from age nine i remember my first allowance it was 50 cents and we didn't have a bookstore in town, but we had a Rexall drugstore. We had a magazine rack, and I discovered famous monsters of Filmland. Here was a magazine with werewolves on the cover. And, you know, I instantly fell in love with it because I associated it with the monsters because they were the outsiders. They were the ones being chased by the villagers with the torch. And, you know, you had empathy for Frankenstein and for the mummy and for the wolf man. And, you know, late years later, I became friends with Forrest J. Ackerman, who was editor of the magazine. And the first time I met him, I said, I, said, I just want to thank you because you raised me. If it wouldn't have been for that kind of stuff that I could associate with, I would have gone stir crazy. Yeah. But a lot of the, the people, Stephen King read it when he was a kid, uh, John Landis and Rick Baker, and a lot of people who got into filmmaking and do, doing horror films is because of famous monsters. And at the time of the 50s, 60s, and 70s, that was the biggest thing out there for people. My, my storytelling references are always through film. Jeanette's more uh, literary. She loves she loves I to know. read a lot more than I do. So her references always come from that. But yeah, I definitely had a lot of my early horror um, inspiration come from um, older movies because they and before then, before I even saw my own my first horror movie, I was not a scared scared of anything. And then when I first saw like. Dracula and Nosferatu and all and the were the Wolfman and all that. All of a sudden, I'm just peeing my pants. Like I'm just <laughs> scared of everything. <laughs> yeah, I loved them. And sadly, you know, when you had that three channels back then, you didn't didn't really get to see a lot of them. They always mm -hmm. had the the creature features, and you always had your horror host to introduce your movie on Saturday afternoon. So as kids, we were you know lived in that moment and got model kits and you know did everything we could just to enjoy, it, make it last as long as possible. I remember when they put out the uh, 3D uh, creature from the Black Lagoon and you had to go to the supermarket and get your 3D glasses. I thought that was exciting. <laughs> I'm actually friends with Rico Browning, who's uh, the uh, the creature from uh, the underwater scenes. Nice. Oh, that's... I've done a couple conventions with him. I was like, oh, that's just so cool. I'm hanging out with the creature from the Black Lagoon. <laughs> nice. That's surreal. <laughs> there's, there's a cool meme going around uh, about Creature from the Black Lagoon where it's just him smashing things. It's like, screw this thing that. and this, screw this gate and this yeah. bird and <laughs> this guy. I, I love that. I actually I shared that on Facebook. I was like, yeah, that's great. That's like how Mondays are. That's how we <laughs> But I, I wanted to write his biography so bad. I said, you know, you're the last living universal monster. Yeah. yeah. Plus he did stuff like he did... Uh, did the underwater for Sea Hunt and did the uh, Thunderball with James Bond. He's just a ton of things, and he's just the nicest guy in the world. I'm like, but you're a creature from the Black Lagoon. That's just awesome. 
Well, there you go. There's your next next project. You got to do his biopic, you know, yeah. <laughs> or bi- bi- biography. Uh, he's got a daughter writing it, and I was like, oh no, please let me do it. I said, but if she needs any help, I'll be glad to, you know. In fact, I'm sitting here. I got this photo of signed by me. I'm sitting here looking at it. <laughs> so it's like, yeah, creature, yay, yay. <laughs> so, um, what do you have coming up next? Uh, I am. I just went through the DC Entertainment uh, Talent. Writer, writers works talent, talent development writers workshop. I was one of eight writers out of over 1,500 applicants picked for this um, three three month course where they mm-hmm. basically taught us comic book writing. So I just did a, a couple scripts for them. I'm doing another one now. Uh, I got a, a trilogy. I got to finish up. I, I turned down three offers on her already. It's a it's a three book uh, Native American fantasy. The reason mm-hmm. I I haven't accepted one of the offers because I don't have the outlines for book two and three yet and the deadlines are just impossible to keep I've got friends are bugging me for movie scripts <laughs> so yeah I've got a lot of stuff a lot of a lot of irons in the fire my wife's you know meanest woman in the world says you get in there and write quit goofing off <laughs> so I'm like the laziest writer in the world and say throw a contract my way or throw money down and I get really serious all of a sudden <laughs> I think that's valid it's like oh you want to pay me okay now I'll make it happen <laughs> I, think I do like outlines for the books, and I'm not serious until the contract comes. And it's like, ooh, I got a deadline now. Let me get real serious. <laughs> yeah, when Jeanette gets a contract for a project, she does illustrations. Uh, that's when she just disappears for a couple of days. Yeah, I got to. I'm one, about one to go talk, into art I want to give it back. <laughs> My agent was always always asking. I'm like, you know, well, what happens if I don't finish on time? What about that 10, 15 percent you just took? He goes, oh, I keep mine. I did my job. If you don't do your job, you got to pay that back. I'm like, oh no, <laughs> I'm not paying your 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 part back. No, I'll actually get serious here. Yeah, <laughs> it yeah, it it's amazing what having that just little bit of motivation is like. Oh, I have a deadline. Gets you gets you going. Um, so I... do we want? Okay, Alex is doing the. Hey, Owl, where can people find more about you? Uh, I've got a website, uh, at least temporarily. I just found out that the people hosting do- domain are shutting down. Oh, so I got to no. find it, move it to a new location. So, so hopefully I, I don't lose it. Well, just gotta get, I got to get my webmaster on it, and she's she's a sweetheart. And it's like, well, yeah, we're closing. Here's your refund. I'm like, no, don't do that. Uh-huh. But I finally got on Facebook after fighting with them for six years because. Mm-hmm. Six years ago, they wouldn't believe my name was real. They wanted me to scan my driver's license and send it to them. And A, I didn't have a scanner. Mm-hmm. And B, I refused because they had just given a page to Sasquatch. And I didn't <laughs> think Bigfoot had a driver's license. <laughs> but thanks to the technology of smartphones, I was sitting here and go, ooh, I can just take a picture. I don't have to scan anything. So I took a photo of it and sent it to them. And they could see that my driver's license and passport really ha- does have Al going back on it. So I finally got a Facebook page after all these years. So I am on Facebook. I've got a Twitter page, which I, which I love because it's 140 characters, so I don't really have to say a lot. It's like writing a <laughs> postcard. So you know, I'm like the laziest. So I hate talking about what I do during the day because writers mm-hmm. are the most boring people in the world, Still especially when they're desk. writing. <laughs> What's your Twitter handle? Is it at, going ba- uh, at Owl Going Back? No, it's actually, believe it or not, it's, it's O Going Back. And the reason is when I first joined Twitter, there was a woman who was on Twitter under the name Owl Going Back. <laughs> 
and you go on, and it's got her picture and her real name, but she was using my name as her handle, so I couldn't even get my own name on Twitter. And I was like, I don't know whether to be, you know, take it as a compliment or just be really annoyed that she's using my name. But that does happen a lot. Was, yeah, yeah. She was following people that I've actually worked with, and I said, like, oh, this, this is not good. But I guess after I got on there for a while, she realized I was there, and she disappeared. So I, I grabbed that name, too, and I'm just sitting on it. But it is O going back. Good to know. So everyone, make sure to check out um, Owl Going Back's newest book, which is Tribal Screams, as well as some of his older books. Like, I want to go read, uh, like, pretty much your whole back catalog. And, and, and is, uh, is Tribal Screams out already? Yep. Came out in 2016. It is technically out, but it's I haven't put it up for sale on a page. I mean, people can contact me directly. I'm telling tell them how to get it. I'm doing a bunch of conventions coming up. I got, I'm got i going to be at MegaCon and at uh, International Conference for the Fantastic in the Arts and Oasis in Orlando. It, it's up there. I just got to get a page, and I'm like the slowest, worst computer guy in the world, so it's just, I just got to get it up there where I can sell it. And I haven't put a dedicated a page. And they do have a Tribal Screams coffee from the coffee shop of horror, horrors, and it's a uh, roasted chestnut, and it has the same artwork as the book, which is a magnificent painting done by Michael Broom, who's worked on such great movies as uh, you know, The Crazies. He's he's worked on uh, The Walking Dead, done storyboards for him. He works with Greg Nicotero. He's just a wonderful guy. He gave me this incredible artwork for the piece. So yeah, you know, so buy it, buy it just for the cover. It's worth it. <laughs> I, I as an artist, I can vouch for that. It is freaking gorgeous and just you can't not just try to gaze into those soulless cavities where eyes should be you're just i'm staring at it right now um <laughs> set it down i, I it's know really he, hard he to gave me a really from. nice skin walker i told him i said look i want a skull with feathers but i don't want it to be uh-oh uh-oh hello yeah we're, we got we can, you we got you <laughs> I heard something go click. I'm like, no, the ghost cut us off. <laughs> oh, no. Not yet, ghost, not yet. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. Not yet, ghost no, I think government. I must be somebody trying to call in. But they can just forget it. Yeah, that's what it is. Oh. My, my other son trying to call. I was like, quit calling his phone. We told you we were going to be on the phone. You know, idiot. <laughs> we got like a 17 cell phones in his house. Call one of those. <laughs> so he's trying to get my, get hold of his brother. And it's like, he's not even here. Go away. <laughs> but yeah, go get... Uh, Michael Broom did this wonderful artwork. He gave me a skinwalker. I said, "Don't make it, don't make it human." Because I don't want anybody to say it's a dead Indian on the cover. And you look, it's you know half coyote, half human. Yeah, it's, you know, it's a trickster, and he did a fantastic job. And I, on the back, uh, some really nice people gave me gave me quotes, including George Merrill. And George George's been a friend for many years. We've tried several times to do movies together based on my novels and. Last time we came really close, and then a writer's strike hit and destroyed that deal. So maybe one day George will do one of my books as a movie, hopefully. I sincerely hope so. You made it to the end of the interview. Good job. You made it to the end of the show. Also good job. You know what else is a good job? Or who does a good job, Alex? Do you know? I think it's road microphones. Holy cow. Are you a brain reader? I'm a microphone listener. What? Or a Whoa. talker? You are a podcaster using a Procaster microphone from Rode. Isn't that cool? Thank you so much to our sponsor, Rode Microphones, for providing these awesome Procaster mics. They have an amazing line of audio thingamabobbies, right? Yeah, they're very technical. You should go check them out on Rode.com, R-O-D-E.com. Uh, they have recorders, microphones, everything for your recording needs, and check them out. 
And if you want to check out what we're up to, you can find us on horrormade.com and you can talk to overcaffeinated me at horror underscore mate on and Twitter. You, and Twitter. And you can find me on Twitter at HTV Immortal. And I'm up to lots of shenanigans. Uh, so if you want to see some of our stories and horror haikus and all sorts of stuff in advance when they do come out during the week, uh, Jeanette does horror haikus on Tuesday on horrormade.com. That's horror haikus day. Hashtag Horakus Day. And then on Wednesdays, I do short stories. And we have other cool, fantastically horror, creepy things on horrormade.com. Have a wonderful, wonderful, whatever time of day it is, my friends. But think of this question as you wander through the woods. What was that behind you? Okay, bye! With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.